This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Africa today contributes barely 1.5% to world trade, but its future is brighter than that number might suggest. The continent has a growing middle class, institutions that are investing heavily in infrastructure, and in another decade, it will emerge as a market of 1 billion consumers. Elkana Odembo, Kenya's ambassador to the United States, visited Wharton recently and spoke with knowledge at Wharton about the potential rewards and risks of investing in Africa. Ambassador Odembo, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Before we talk about Kenya, I'd like to ask you about Africa's place in global business. What business opportunities does Africa offer and why do so many companies overlook them? Thank you very much for your question. A good question, an important question, I think, for the entire international uh, business community. Uh, the fact of the matter is, at the moment, we contribute very little, about 1.5% to, to the global trade. So for that reason, it appears to most investors and most business people uh, that Africa isn't particularly active in terms of business and trade. Uh, on the other side of that is the fact that uh, Africa is the continent that uh, so all roads will be leading to uh, because of some of the things that are happening in Africa at the moment. Um, a, a rising uh, middle class, we are developing African governments, are investing heavily in infrastructure. Uh, we are also uh, in a situation where um, we, we, we hold on the continent riches and commodities that uh, the world economy values and the world economy requires in order to keep growing the world economy. Um, and, and so we are hoping that with all the riches and, and the resources that we have and the commodities that we know are precious to the world uh, and that the world is beginning to turn its head towards Africa, we want to position ourselves uh, and make sure that we are ready to do business with the rest of the world and, and grow that percentage from 1.5% to you know 10% in the very near future, because we think we have a lot to offer to the continent. And, and the fact of the matter is uh, that those who are investing, who are currently uh, uh, on the continent, uh, are doing very well. That's great. If you were to look from the perspective of somebody outside the region, uh, just looking outside into Africa, how would you segment the African market? Uh, what are the regions that are most promising in terms of investment? I think in terms of investment, I would, of course, favor uh, East Africa because uh, that's where Kenya is located. Uh, but you also must appreciate the fact that uh, the continent is beginning to think collectively. And, and so we are looking at Africa as an investment destination and as a trading block. Uh, and, and as such, what the continent has done and the African Union with the leadership of the African Union, uh, we have segmented the continent into various regional economic blocks. By and large, the regional economic blocks are beginning to do very well. Some of them are fairly young. Uh, the East African regional block, for example, with a population of about 150 million, that's Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, Rwanda, and Burundi, uh, offers a significant opportunity because uh, we have a customs protocol at the moment uh, that has increased quite significantly the uh, trade between the countries 
uh, a few months ago, we, try, uh, we signed uh, the five countries uh, in the region, signed a free market and free trade uh, protocol, which now enables us to move uh, uh, goods, services, uh, and people across the boundaries without any, any hitches. We are investing heavily in the infrastructure within the region with major roads and corridors coming from the port on the Indian Ocean, going all the way into southern Sudan, going all the way into Ethiopia, going all the way into Rwanda and Burundi and to eastern, eastern uh, DRC. So I, th I see uh, tremendous opportunities uh, within the East African region, uh, but the South African development community as well. Uh, SADC uh, is also doing equally well in terms of building regional infrastructure and increasing trade and opening up the region as a whole so that if you are doing business in one country, you have access to the rest of, uh, of the region as well. Uh, there's also the, co uh, the common market for East and Southern Africa, of which Kenya uh, is a member and, and a leading player within that. Uh, and so again, by setting shop and doing business with Kenya, uh, you have not just the possibility of the East African community, this population of 150 or so million, you have the population of the East and Southern African countries, some 18 or so countries, the population of 400 million. Uh, Kenyan business people are already investing quite heavily because there is a market in that East and Southern African region. So I would say uh, prospects are very good in the East African uh, region. When we talk about investment, we usually refer to opportunities, but we also have to consider risks. That's right. Uh, what, what would you regard as the principal risks of doing business in Africa that international investors should be aware of? And how can they uh, protect themselves against those risks? There has been uh, for a long time uh, this perception that, uh, granted, there are risks, and, and any business person going to do business anywhere outside the, the environment in which they are comfortable, outside of the environment in which uh, they're familiar, will be subjected to some element of risk regardless. So there is no place where you go and invest and there is no element of risk. The kinds of risks that businesses and investors have had to deal with on the continent are related to, for example, civil wars that we have seen uh, come and go. Uh, we have had uh, risks uh, related to uh, unreliable uh, uh, judiciary processes and recourses in court, uh, so that if you uh, had some, um, uh, if you if, if you had issues uh, uh, that pertain to uh, business uh, contracts and so forth. Uh, that the recourse in courts was not readily and easily available. The court procedure is taking too long. Uh, but we have a situation where, again, uh, if you look at the continent in the last few years, uh, very few places where there are civil wars uh, compared to 10 years ago, where at any given time there was an average of about 10 countries, African countries. And every time there's a war in any given country, uh, again, the mindset about the continent is that, you know, there's war in one country, there are some people who imagine there's war all over uh, the continent. And that's just a geography lesson issue that, uh, <laughs> that needs to be sorted out. That these are different, 53 different countries, and that when something is happening in one country, 
Um, uh, so I, I think, and if you look at what has happened in the last few years in terms of improved governance, uh, all the countries are becoming more democratic, they're having elections more regularly. Um, so the sort of typical tensions that would result in risk-causing uh, situations, those have been minimized to, to a great extent. Uh, wars uh, around the time of elections, uh, civil wars between different communities in a country, uh, fighting over natural resources between one community and another. Um, I think, uh, by and large, uh, the sp you know, uh, we've overcome to a great extent those kinds of challenges, and uh, the continent is is looking ahead to just being a continent where there's a certain amount of predictability, because that was the other risk. Business people like to know mm -hmm. that there's a certain amount of predictability um, in in different ways. Um, so I think uh, we now have all the ingredients. Uh, that minimize all those risks that people uh, feared before. Uh, and one of the ways to, to, uh, to establish that is for a prospective business person investor to talk to some company uh, that is already doing business uh, on the continent, has been doing business over a period of time. And they would be able to tell you the kinds of changes that have taken place over the last you know, 10 years, five years particularly, and, and, and how much we have uh, managed now as countries and as regions to minimize risks uh, to investors because we all appreciate now uh, that we've been left behind and, and therefore we must do what is necessary uh, to create an enabling environment for the private sector and, and business and, and investment, both local and foreign direct investment as well. It's quite likely that these days, if we were to pick a, a company that has been investing in China, uh, in, in Africa, it would quite likely be from China. Yes. As we all know, uh, our, our China, uh, this is an issue our Chinese edition has yes. been following closely, yes. is the volume of Chinese investment in Africa. Yes. Uh, could you help us understand how you view China's investment strategy in Africa and what it means for investors from other parts of the world? Um, good question. I, I, I don't know if I can talk too much to the Chinese investment strategy because I'm not privy to the Chinese investment strategy. Um, uh, but, but at from, least as it from, appears to uh, you. From, from, from my observation, from what I see, um, uh, in the last few years, the Chinese, when they first came into the continent, noticeably, um, about 10 years ago, um, a lot of African countries were very uneasy with the nature and the manner in which they were coming in and, and setting up uh, businesses and uh, the types of investments that we're making. I think the Chinese have become much more sophisticated in the last 10 years, and I believe uh, that they now actually do have a strategy. Again, I do not have it. I don't know if they'll make it available to anybody. Uh, but the fact of the matter is there is, there appears to be some strategy uh, and it evolves, involves, evolves around uh, what they have studied the continent extremely well. They know what the demographics are. Uh, there is a rising uh, middle class in, uh, on the continent. Uh, there's a very dynamic young population. Uh, the continent is becoming increasingly uh, urbanized, um, and therefore there is a market and purchasing power on the continent. So that's one. So I think part of uh, one part 
of the Chinese strategy is based on the fact that they are reading Africa very well in terms of where we are now and where we are likely to go to in the next uh, few years. The second element of it is that the Chinese also appreciate the rich, the riches that the continent has. Uh, most other countries have known the kinds of riches that exist there. Um, some of them, some uh, foreign countries, uh, northern countries, North America, Europe, uh, have tended to extract from the continent those commodities and those valuable uh, um, minerals, uh, metals that they needed in order to grow and develop their industries. Uh, the Chinese, uh, I think, have figured out that um, over the next 10 or so years, uh, the, some of the most valuable commodities uh, that the, the global economy requires uh, are on the continent. So I think the Chinese are positioning themselves and, and, and looking to do business uh, with African countries. The Chinese have figured out that in another 10 years, uh, the continent will have a population of 1 billion people. That's a very sizable market. That's a sizable market uh, for selling uh, your products, uh, sizable uh, market for you know setting up and, 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 and not to mention the, the human resource capability that exists there for producing goods that you might want to export into your import into your own uh, into your own country so again I'm not sure what the strategy is but I can look and imagine that um, there are things that they're seeing there that, uh, that obviously uh, are going to put them in a very good position um, uh, in terms of uh, who will benefit and what implications do you think this will have for investors from other parts of the world? It, it, it's a challenge. I mean, investors are going to have to compete with somebody who already has a foot uh, in the door, uh, an investor who is investing heavily in building, developing infrastructure, which is where uh, African governments will tell you that's where their greatest need has been. Infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure. And uh, if that's where the Chinese are putting the emphasis, and, and a good part of this infrastructure is about opening up the continent. And, and so you will be able to, you're in a situation where uh, if you are part of what is going to be going on in the continent in the next 10 years or so, uh, and if this infrastructure has been developed, Africa is going to be able to trade within itself quite, quite significantly. And we've learned this just in the last two, three years during the global recession and this economic crisis, uh, when our commodities didn't have a ready market because our buyers, our traditional markets, were experiencing the crisis. So we turned inward and started trading with each other. So the potential for trading within the continent with this developed infrastructure, clearly the person who is investing in the infrastructure themselves uh, will stand to benefit very significantly because they will know uh, the infrastructure very well and part of just being a good business person and investor is knowing how the infrastructure is uh, is set up and how things move from point A to point B. Um, so, Turning now to Kenya, uh, what is Vision 2030 and what opportunities does it offer international investors? Thank you. Uh, Vision 2030 is Kenya's plan and strategy. Our goal of making the country a middle-income country by the year 2030, which we have 
uh, only 20 more years to go. This is a plan that we developed in the last three, four years. Uh, we have traditionally planned in five-year cycles, uh, which is sort of corresponds with uh, each government is in place for about five years, for five years. Um, and, and it occurred to us that uh, this isn't making sense, uh, that if we are going to get out of the sort of levels of poverty that, that we are in, we need to project a little bit beyond just five years. Um, and so it was a national strategic thinking and a national strategic planning process that we embarked on. It involved stakeholders across the board. Government, non-governmental, private sector was very, very central in the development of it because our government has made this commitment that the private sector will be the engine of growth. We also appreciate the fact that if there's going to be a movement from the poverty uh, stage that we are in to becoming a middle-income country, uh, wealth will have to be created, employment will have to be created, the economy will have to grow, and therefore the private sector has a very, very key role to play. So they were very central in this visioning, as we called it. Um, and the strategic thinking and planning process uh, you know, uh, was stretched over a period of about a year and a half. So the document that we call Vision 2030 is Kenyans visioning uh, and imagining what uh, a developed Kenya, a middle-income Kenya, would look like. And within that particular uh, vision, we have very clearly identified a number of pillars for getting us to becoming a middle-income country. There's a very strong economic pillar, and that economic pillar, again, the private sector, very central. Uh, they developed a good part of it uh, in partnership with uh, a number of uh, foreign experts as well. Um, and it is about how to position the economy and managing the macroeconomic uh, issues and, and aspects of the economy, uh, getting the economy to grow at at least 10% and consistently over a period of time. What is it that we need to do with the economy? Uh, and so the private sector, very central and key in the economic pillar, and, and that's a very important one. And then we have a social pillar that looks at all the social aspects uh, related to food production, food security, healthcare and education and uh, shelter, water and sanitation. Very, very important for us, uh, infrastructure development, all a part of it. And then there's the political pillar. Uh, and the political pillar is, is equally important because, again, uh, you asked the question earlier about what are these risks uh, that uh, investors fear uh, when it comes to investing uh, in the continent. Uh, and the fact is that uh, political instability has cost us a lot. The last 50 years of independence, the level and the extent of political instability that we've seen in the continent is to a large extent very politically motivated. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's now being managed. Uh, in the case of Kenya, uh, we have just recently acquired, gotten ourselves a new constitution yes, the fourth, on the 4th of uh, August. Uh, we had a referendum, the 27th, we promulgated a new constitution. Uh, and, and the constitution then provides for us a framework for governance. And, and so within that political column, political pillar, governance was a big one. So within that, we're looking at issues of corruption, for example. So again, talk about uh, 
variables that are not conducive and supportive of good uh, business and, and, and investment. Corruption has been a big one, and you know we can't run away from that. Um, we have now, with this constitution, put in place certain structures uh, and institutions that will enable a completely overhauled judiciary. For example, over the next 12 months, the judiciary in Kenya is going to be a new one. Um, because we appreciate the fact that the, some of the problem with regard to prosecution, for example, um, and, and due uh, processes in the courts and the judiciary uh, are as a result of, uh, of not very accountable and not very effective uh, judiciary. So that's being cleaned up. So is it your expectation that uh, now that you have the new constitution in Kenya, uh, that it will help to increase business and financial transparency? Because this is a matter of tremendous concern uh, to international investors, that there should be business transparency. Absolutely. Um, the, the first group of people in Kenya to react to the promulgation of the new constitution was actually the business community. Uh, and that says something. They came out uh, and congratulated Kenyans for, for having uh, uh, achieved this uh, very historical, uh, uh, this major historical achievement. Uh, and they spoke about why they felt that this was very important. Uh, and, and they reiterated the fact that there have been too many things in the environment that have made businesses uncomfortable and investors uh, uncomfortable, and a big part of it has to do with this unpredictability, this uh, the level of corruption. Uh, now, with the new constitution, there's even a chapter on leadership and integrity, what we expect of our leaders. Um, the new structures and institutions have been created that enable the private sector. Even at this point, there is a roundtable between business leaders and the prime minister the Prime Minister's office. So regular contacts between the government and the private sector so that the concerns of business are on a regular basis and continuously being communicated to the government. That wasn't the case. In many African countries, uh, you know, the government did what governments do and the private sector was busy uh, doing what they're doing, uh, producing goods and, and services. Uh, that has now changed. So the linkage between the private sector and the government and the engagement between the two, what our constitution has done is that, again, in addition to the fact that the private sector also participated in it because they wanted to see in this constitution all those factors that contribute towards an enabling environment for what they need to do in order to, to, to do their businesses and do their businesses in a sustainable manner, uh, they've made sure that there are these infrastructures and structures and institutions to allow this. For example, with our Vision 2030, there is a national uh, committee, a national economic and social committee. Uh, and this committee is uh, at the highest level. It has ministers in it, and it has all some of the key industry and private sector leaders who also see on it. So this is the oversight body that is monitoring and, 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 and ensuring that uh, our efforts towards this Vision 2030 and becoming a middle-income country stays on track. Uh, and so a lot of business people uh, have a certain level, their level of comfort with what the government is doing and the kind of environment that has been created has increased quite significantly. Their doors are now open, so private sector people do no longer feel 
uh, like adversaries because there had been tensions before between the, you know the private sector and the government, um, and I th and I'm seeing that happening in a number of African countries as well. Uh, as leadership changes, you're even having a situation where you have leaders, heads of state, heads of government, who themselves have a business background and therefore appreciate the role of the business community and will do therefore what is needed and necessary in order to provide that uh, enabling environment for the business community. You know, you were referring earlier to the, the social pillar. Uh, and, and one of the things in that, uh, asp, uh, in that regard that has been, that has sort of caught the imagination of a number of people is a number of microfinance and social enterprise programs. Uh, to, to what degree do you see these coming up in Kenya? And have you seen any perceptible impact on poverty uh, as a result of social entrepreneurship? And absolutely, absolutely. Micro, micro enterprise and microcredit programs on the continent. They're beginning to mushroom everywhere. Uh, but in Kenya, we have certainly seen the impact that that has. For, for the longest time, as you know, um, a lot of businesses and financial institutions shied away from what they perceived as the poor, the unbankable, uh, because that it was perceived that there wasn't too much business to do with that group. And, and because that is such a large group, a large proportion, of the continent, um, the, this phenomenon that we call now microfinance and, and microenterprise is really a thing that was started very interestingly in the nonprofit sector. The NGO sector is the one that uh, quickly appreciated that uh, the very poor people that they were working with also needed to have access to credit. And so the first microcredit uh, institutions. If, if the one that's best known is the Grameen Bank model. Even that started uh, as a non-profit organization, by a non-profit organization, um, with the appreciation that we need to get money and credit into the hands of the poor, and that the poor, when they have access to this credit, are able to do some incredible things in order to improve their lot. And I think the commercial banks and all sorts of other microfinance institutions have come in subsequently such that you now have a fi fairly uh, significant microfinance, uh, microenterprise sector that's growing so rapidly. Um, and, and so we need to, to make sure that we, again, uh, maintain the focus on making sure that we are looking at the poor and, and enabling them. It's not just about credit, because what NGOs are able to do very well that traditional commercial banks were not able to do is to invest also in building the capacity of the people. It's one thing to give, to make credit available. It's another thing to make sure that this credit is going to be applied properly, that people have good business plans, good projections, and that they actually are making money. Um, so I think the prospects are tremendous. Uh, we need to see more. I don't think we can get enough microfinance and microenterprise programs on the continent. I think the continent must go in that direction because I believe it is the way that we will be able to grow the economy, growing the economy from the bottom. Uh, in this regard, I have uh, uh, read that uh, Africa and, in fact, uh, Kenya are at the forefront of using mobile telephones in the area of uh, mobile banking. Yes. Uh, could, could you tell me what impact has that had on these social programs? and That's very interesting. How, how, how do you, how, where do you see this trend going? 
that's a part of, uh, again, opening up the continent, opening up the economy, liberalizing the economy. Um, just 10 years ago, uh, only some 300,000 or so Kenyans had access to a telephone. When we liberalized the communication sector and opened it up to the point where we now have some four or five uh, mobile telephone companies, uh, within a period of 10 years, we've gone from 300,000 Kenyans having access to a telephone to now close to 20 million having access. Uh, and the innovations within that subsector are incredible. That is where one of the leading, the leading uh, mobile uh, services provider, uh, Safaricom, uh, has actually innovated a money transfer uh, system uh, using the mobile telephone. What that has done, some studies have been done at the, Insti uh, the Institute for Development Studies at the University of Nairobi, not conclusive at this point yet. But what they are saying is that the ability to, the facility that the Safaricom provides to Kenyans to transfer money by telephone may very well have contributed more to national development than any other investment that the government has made since independence. Just this ability to be able to transfer money from the people who have the money into the hands of people who would not. You have to realize that, that most of this rural poor population were people who, of course, didn't have banking. So sending money from point A to point B was such a chore. Money would get lost, money would, you know, all sorts of things will happen. And those are disincentives for people who wanted children, who work in towns who need to send remit money back to support their parents and their siblings and so forth. But now, with 20 million handsets in the hands of Kenyans, a significant number of these people being young people, middle class, uh, people who now have access to some disposable income, the ability to put money in the hands, taking money out of the urban setting and urban centers, into the rural and the peripheries of the country and putting that money in the hands of the poor is changing the economies in the traditionally poor uh, rural setups. And, and uh, the sky's the limit. The banks have come in later as a result of what uh, this uh, telephone company was able to do. The banks then started asking questions about, oh my God, you know, money is being transferred from point A to point B. They are transferring more money than anybody, than all the banks put together using a mobile telephone. And so they quickly realized that rather than try to compete and, and, and uh, put all sorts of obst uh, obstacles in the way of these money transfers using telephones, they said, let's join them and see if we can find uh, opportunities for partnerships. So what we are seeing now is some of the large commercial banks are going into partnerships with mobile telephone companies uh, to now start doing all these other innovative things so that people can now bank using their telephones, people can withdraw money using their telephones, and so forth and so on. Uh, again, the limit, uh, the sky's the limit when it comes to these innovations and uh, um, again, young people, 30 years of age, uh, all of them well-educated, trained. They're the ones who are doing, uh, bringing about all these uh, innovations. That's, so. a, that's a remarkable story, and thank so. you for sharing that with us. Uh, one, just one last question. Uh, if you had a chance to address, say, a room full of CEOs, mm. uh, international CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, 
and tell them why they should invest in Africa and why they should invest in Kenya? What are some of the reasons that you would give? I think the number one reason would be that if you want a place where your investment will, one, bring you good returns and will bring you good returns in a sustainable manner over a long period of time, and you're willing to wait. You do not want to make a quick dollar or a quick euro and, and jump out and repatriate uh, the profits. If you're in it for the long haul, and if you are in the business with the mindset that you want to make a profit, obviously, as a business, as a foreign investor, uh, but you also want to support the development of the continent, then your time frame must also be long-term-ish. Yeah? So none of that in and out quickly. Uh, you might make your money, but you might not do much for. But if you want to be in it for the long haul and you want to do it in a sustainable manner and you want a loyal partner and a loyal customer base, um, then the continent is the place to go, again, because of the riches and the commodities that we have available, this growing middle class that we have, this infrastructure that we are investing in that will make it possible for you being in one African country to do business in a whole range of countries if you come to Nairobi. Now talking about Kenya, why Kenya? An investment in Kenya is an investment in the entire continent. Within four hours of Nairobi, you can fly to 24 capitals uh, on the continent. Uh, that ought to be an incentive for any business person, again, looking at the size of the market uh, within the next, it's predicted five, 10 years at the most, we will have a population of a billion. Uh, and if that isn't market enough, then I don't know what is. So um, I think, I think uh, all the sort of ingredients uh, are in place for, for Africa to be the, the place where an investor, a serious uh, investor, uh, should be. Uh, Ambassador Odebo, thank you so much for speaking thank to us. Thank you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you very much. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.